Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. We have been in a series called Acts, the Church Unleashed, because that's exactly what happened with the early church. The people of God were filled with the Spirit of God, and just everything just lit like wildfire, and God did something amazing through his church, and he is still unleashing his church today. Last week, Pastor Brady talked about the difference between contenders and pretenders, and we met a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they brought an offering to the early church, but yet they did not bring the full offering, and because of their kind of I guess you could say them being a little shady with the offering, God strike them dead. And we look at something like that and we go, why would God do something like that? Well, God is very serious about his bride and his name. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they did not have to lie and they didn't have to bring an offering, but they were trying to be something that they were not and they got called out for it. And we also saw a guy named Barnabas, the encourager. He sold some only land that he had, and he gave it to the church because he was a contender. We learned some things about contenders. The first thing we learned about contenders is they have a loose grip on stuff but a tight grip on God. That means that we are not most concerned about the things that we have or the things that we've been gifted with, but we're most concerned about those people around us. Also, we learned that contenders have a healthy fear of God. What I mean by that, growing up, I was always aware that my dad was able to drop kick me at any moment if he needed to. But because I knew my dad loved me, even though he was able to drop kick me at any moment, he didn't go around drop kicking me all the time. And here's the thing about having a healthy fear of God. We recognize that he gives us our next breath. And so because he is a good father, he gives us our next breath, and we have a healthy respect and a healthy awe and a healthy fear of him because of who he is. We also learned that contenders are most concerned with the glory of God and not their own image. This is something I struggle with all the time because I want people to like me and I want people to think highly of me. And sometimes I'm most concerned about keeping up an image than I am about bringing glory to my Heavenly Father. And so today, we're going to look even more and see what it looks like to be a contender of the faith, to be someone who champions the cause of Christ. And we're going to dive into Acts chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And before we read together, let me pray for us. So I invite you to pray with me. Dear Father, thank you for being good. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that you have called us for such a time as this. Father, over the next few moments as we open up your word and we are changed by it, may we walk out of here different than when we walked in. Lord, may throughout the week, will you remind us of the word that you have planted in our heart. And Lord, let us live differently in light of it. Lord, let us not just be hearers of your word, but let us also respond to your goodness and be doers of your word. And so, Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for the wisdom that you're going to give us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, 
the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the Hellenistic Jews come to the Hebraic Jews and they have a problem. They go, hey, I want you to know that our widows are hangry because you're not giving them any food. Y'all going to have to help a brother out because our widows are hungry. This is kind of one of the first issues that arose in churches. Hey, we got to feed our people. Verse 2 says this. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Let's pause right here. I don't want you to hear this as the disciples saying that they are too good to serve tables. At the early part of the church, these disciples are preaching. They're serving tables. They're taking care of the sick. They're taking care of those who are hungry. They are doing everything in this new church. And what they are saying is it is time for us to engage these that have been added to our number and we are going to allow them the blessing of serving the church. Verse number three. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Verse four. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, which we're going to talk about further, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas. I like him already. From Antioch. A convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Here is something that we all need to know about contenders. Contenders are willing servants. Contenders are willing servants. They're not reluctant servants, which I'm like a lot of the times when I serve, but they are willing servants. Why are champions of the faith willing servants? Why? Because that's the way that Jesus was. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Everything was created through him and by him, and yet he still was willing to serve. And so because we are the bride, we are little Christ, meaning we represent Jesus, we do the same thing our king does. And if our king serves willingly, guess what? We serve willingly. Because what are we going to say? I mean, we really don't have any excuse when we see our king, who was the king of kings and lord of lords, and who spoke things into existence. The fact that he was serving eliminates every excuse that we could possibly have. The core of Christian commitment is service. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of what we do. Why? Because it was a part of who Jesus was. It's what Jesus did. See, we take our lead from Jesus in everything we do. If you want to know how to navigate this life, read about Jesus. See what Jesus did. We take our lead from him. And so the core of Christian commitment is service because that was the heart of Jesus. And so maybe you're sitting there and you're going, Nick, you know, as I look around, I don't really see anywhere in the church that needs any help. Whenever I come into the parking lot, there are people telling me where to park. 
When I walk inside, there are people saying hello to me. When I drop my babies off, there are people who are willing to receive them. And so, Nick, maybe that no one really needs my help. Don't believe that lie, everybody. But maybe the question is, where do I serve? And there's a couple of things that will lead us to places that we can serve. The first thing is, what is your place of skill? What are you good at? What can you do? What is something that you know you're gifted at and that you could leverage for the glory of God? Let me give you some examples. If you like teenagers, maybe you work with them in a capacity, maybe you're a school teacher, maybe you're a high school teacher, maybe you're a coach, and you're wondering, where can I work? How can I use my skill to serve? I'm just going to maybe throw it out that, that maybe if you're good with working with teenagers, maybe that's a place you can serve. Maybe you're someone that is a college professor or works on the college campus and you're wondering, how can I use my skills to serve the church? College ministry will take your help. Maybe you're like, well, you know, I'm not really good with college students or high school students, but every time someone hands you a baby, the baby just falls asleep. It's just like, uh-huh. I could have used you some years back in my house for one thing. But maybe if you're like a baby whisperer, go whisper to some babies in the nursery and in the preschool. They need your help. You look at what you're skilled at, and you leverage that for the kingdom of God. And maybe you're sitting there, and you're thinking to yourself, but Nick, um, I really don't like humans. I mean, i much rather be by myself and not talk to anyone. I would say if that is you, probably being a greeter is not your skill set, okay? Like, you, we don't need you at the door going, welcome to New Vision. Glad you're here. Take this, right? Fix your face, everybody. No. So maybe because that's not your bend, maybe where you need to serve is maybe more behind the scenes. You're just going to pray for people or you're going to write them encouraging cards. There is a place for everyone. Maybe it's a place of skill or maybe it's a place of passion. Maybe you look around this world and you go, you know what? What really stirs me up, what I really want to see answered is this. Maybe you have this heart for serving people. Students in the inner city, and you're going, I really want to use my gifts and talents to love and to bless them. Maybe you have a heart for homeless ministry, and you're going, I just want people who are without a home to know that they are loved and they are still worth God's love. Maybe you're someone that goes, you know what? I'm really passionate about young ladies getting it about Jesus. Maybe you need to serve with young ladies. There is a place for everybody. And so maybe just look at your passions and go, Because of my passions, I am willing to serve in that capacity. If you're passionate about cooking, you're already watching, you're always watching the cooking shows and you're like, oh, I love food. If people show up at your house unannounced at dinner time, like, oh, hey, you're cooking dinner. May I partake, right? Like maybe use something you're passionate and good at for the kingdom of God. There is a place for you. Maybe the place you serve is a place of greatest need. Maybe you look around and go, you know what, I don't particularly love that, but they need some help. And so maybe I will just lean in and serve there. You serve where the greatest need is. And here's the deal. Maybe that place that you end up serving, your heart might change towards it and you might fall in love with what you're doing. And it just started with you feeling a need, but it led to you finding your passion Servants also realize that there is nothing beneath them. There is nothing beneath them and no one beneath them. And why? 
Why is there no one beneath us? Because there is no one beneath Jesus. There was nothing too low for Jesus to do. Jesus washed people's feet. Ugh. Like, and we're talking about people walking around in sandals in the Holy Land. Like, ugh. Like, and the Savior of the world, the creator of all things, is willing to wash his creation's dirty feet. We don't get an excuse. And we see Stephen. Stephen was sharp, full of the Holy Spirit. He was educated, but yet he was serving tables. Why? Because there is nothing beneath him. Because when we say we are a Christ follower, we also put on the yoke of servant. You can't separate the two. And I'm very good at trying to separate the two. Well, I'm going to be a Christ follower, but I don't have to serve people. Well, if I'm going to reflect Jesus Christ, then I need to be a servant. J.D. Gura says this, you should make room in your life, particularly here in the church, to do things you aren't necessarily excited to do so that you maintain the role of servant. Here's the thing. Being a servant, being willing to serve is the best thing for you to do. Why? Because we don't need any help thinking too highly of ourselves. Amen? Like none of us struggle with, man, none of us struggle with thinking we're pretty awesome. None of us struggle with wanting people to serve us. Like, at least for me, I'm like, yeah, serve me, people. Come on. But yet, when we end up serving and we make ourselves less and we humble ourselves, that is the best position for us to be because God will work on our heart in a way that he can't work on it if we're not willing to serve. So it's really the best thing for you and I to be willing to serve. And here's the thing. When we serve and we serve in a place of greatest need, it could be a launching pad for a greater opportunity. Hear me. You don't go into serving in a place so that you can get something greater. You go and, serve into a, go, go and serve in a place knowing that God is teaching you something and refining your heart for something that he may call you to later. You go, God, I know that you're going to use this, and I know I'm supposed to learn some lessons in this serving that you might use later in a different capacity. So it might be a launching pad into the very thing that you may love. See, Stevens started off serving tables, but then he ends up preaching, which we're going to see in just a minute, preaching the longest sermon in Acts in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious council. He went from a table waiter to a preacher, only through serving. So growing up, I felt a call to ministry when I was in the eighth grade, and I was not excited about that. I was very reluctant to engage that calling because I would tell myself that my testimony hadn't had time to get really, really good. I hadn't done really crazy things yet. So I was like, God, this is too soon. A brother got to mess up more before you can use me. That was my thought. I know it's flawed thinking, but that's how I thought. And so I said yes to this call of ministry going into full-time ministry, and God kept affirming that. And it's funny, and I know y'all probably don't do this, but I told God that, yes, I was willing to serve, but then I told him where I was willing to serve. I was like, hey, God, I will go to India and help Mother Teresa. I will do whatever it is you want me to do. I'll work with high school students. I'll work with college students. I'll do whatever it is. I'll even work with kids. But then I gave God a disclaimer. But God, heavenly, heavenly Father who sits on his throne. Sometimes when I pray, I'm like, I'm really nice to God. I'm like, God, you, you are awesome. Don't make me do this thing I don't want to do. 
And so I was saying, God, I will do anything you want me to do except work with middle school students. And I would say, God, you know, God, they just, they smell like a mix of body spray and funk. They just, I don't know what it is. They're hyper. They're not quite grown into their body. And you're a middle school student now. I love you, but this is true. Um, And then I was just like, God, no, I don't want to. So I'm interning at this church in Atlanta, and uh, the middle school pastor ends up taking a job elsewhere, and so there's an open position. And my supervisors come to me, and they're like, hey, would you be willing temporarily to step into this role and just love on middle school kids and serve middle school kids. Y'all, everything in me wanted to say no. I was like, God, I told you I did not want to work with no stanky middle school kids. <laughs> and here we are in an opportunity to work with middle school kids. And so I said yes. And it was reluctant. And then let me go ahead and let y'all in a little bit. I'm going to peel back the curtain and, and just to let y'all know something. When someone else on staff or in charge of a ministry approaches you and says this to you, hey, could you just serve this one time or could you just serve temporarily? We are lying to you. I just want you to know it, y'all. We are knowingly lying to you. You're like, that's not right. Oh, yes, it is. God redeems it. So listen. I'm just telling you, because some of y'all have experienced this. Some of y'all thought you were going to hold the door one Sunday because they needed some help. And five years later, you're like, welcome to New Vision. Welcome to New Vision. And so same thing with me. I'm like, oh, temporary. Yeah, just one Sunday maybe or one Wednesday night or just, no, no, that's not how it went down. And so as I'm working with these middle school kids, I still don't really like them, which y'all might think that doesn't really mix. You don't like what you're doing and you're working with them. I know. (laughs) Anyways. And so I keep working, and I remember very specifically, I remember I was spending some time with Jesus, and I was reading God's word, and through God's word, God kind of said this to my heart. Hey, Nick, maybe it's time for you to see middle school students how I see them. And so then I asked this next question, which I shouldn't have asked. How, well, how do you see them, God? And through his word, this is what he reminded. Hey, Nick, I see them as my ambassadors. Hey, Nick, I see them as people who have been called by name for a specific purpose. Hey, Nick, they are the vessels of the living God. And then I told God I didn't want to talk to him anymore. (laughs) But listen, as I began to embrace this place I got to serve, as I began to believe God, as I began to believe that God could possibly use me in the life of these middle school students, like God started to change my heart. And so I realized this is that very thing that I told God I wouldn't do is the very thing he used to make me look more like himself. And so for some of us, we're telling God, God, no way, no how am I doing that? Or no way, no how am I doing that? Maybe the very thing that you keep telling God that you will not do is the very thing that will change you to look more like your king. And so all I'm saying is maybe just be open and be willing to do whatever it is God has called you to do. Because we see serving well softens the hearts of even the greatest antagonist. And we see this in the early church. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says this. 
So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So we have these Jewish priests who see something going on in this new bride called the church, and they are changed. They end up walking in relationship with Jesus, and some of the biggest opponents to it became some of the biggest supporters of it. Because serving softens the heart of even the greatest antagonists. Francis Schaeffer says this, The love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. What that means is when people look at you and I who are serving in all kind of different capacities and we, they see that we're doing it with a willing spirit and with joy in our hearts, it kind of takes them back because they're going, whoa, this doesn't make any sense. But it gives off the aroma of Jesus. As we serve, people are drawn in to Jesus. That's why serving is a part of the heart of a contender. Verse 8, chapter 6 of Acts says this. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9. Opposition arose. And let me go ahead and say this. Opposition will always arise when you are being obedient. So let us stop being surprised as we walk in obedience when opposition comes. It's, it's going to happen. As you align your heart and you fix your eyes on Jesus and you go where he calls you to go, there is always going to be opposition. And we see that in the life of Stephen and so many of the followers of Jesus. It says this, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Love that part. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some man to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. Guys, it's the same old scheme just another day. Like the enemy did not learn any new tricks. Hey, we're going to accuse him of doing something that he's not doing. We're going to bring him in front of the Sanhedrin in order to persecute him. But even though we see the same old tricks and we see the enemy still trying to overcome the kingdom, know this, that the enemy will never overcome the kingdom of God. No matter what tricks he uses, no matter the schemes he tries, it does not work. Verse Chapter 7, verse 51 of Acts. So Stephen's in front of the Sanhedrin, and he begins to talk, and it says earlier that he goes through the Old Testament scriptures and explains to them about Jesus. And we get to verse 51, and this is what Stephen says to the crowd. You stiff-necked people. That's strong, y'all. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Fellas, don't ever say your wife is just like their mom, ever. Not that I've ever done that. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not yet obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So Stephen is preaching, and the crowd goes, why? Because the truth pierced their heart. If you're anything like me, there are times where I don't want to hear the truth because it pierces my heart. And so this crowd is sitting in front of Stephen, who used to be the table waiter, who is now preaching about the glory of Jesus, and they do not like what they are hearing because they recognize what he was saying was true. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Todd, some weeks ago, talked about Jesus standing up because Jesus' typical posture after he ascended to heaven was seated at the right hand of God because his work was finished. It was nailed to a cross, and the payment had been paid. And so in this moment, when he sees his boy Stephen just going all in, fixing his eyes on Jesus, Jesus stands and begins to clap for this contender of the faith. He says, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. May I say something to you just in this moment? See, some of us have gotten our thinking and our theology wrong, and we think that Jesus is mad at us. We think, hey, because I wasn't obedient that one time, or I didn't do that thing, or because Whatever, you fill in the blank. We think that Jesus is mad at us. Can I just tell you something? Jesus is not mad at you. He loves you and he is for you. And you go, well, Nick, how do you know? Because you don't give your life for someone who you do not like. You just don't. Jesus is for you. And you know what else? He is cheering you on as you navigate this life. You have a Savior who is for you. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. This is a brutal scene, everyone. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out and he said this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. I think it's interesting that because Stephen's eyes were fixed on his king, he followed in the king's footsteps. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here is Stephen surrendering his life, embracing the suffering, and he's doing it in such a way to reflect his king. Why? Because the spirit of the living God was within him, and he had been sitting with Jesus. The final exam of contenders is how they're willing to serve in the midst of suffering. Contenders shine in suffering. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. 
See, some of you are thinking, so Nick, you're telling me that when I suffer, I should be singing joyful songs and, and jumping up and down and saying, woo, I'm suffering. That is not what I'm saying because that's called being fake. But this is what I am saying. I'm saying in the midst of suffering, you have a perspective of a bigger picture. You know that your father and your savior is able to leverage the suffering for something good. And so you walk in that posture. No, you're not happy about it, but you know that God is going to leverage it for the good of those who have been called according to his purposes. And so we shine in suffering. We paint a picture of Jesus in the midst of really hard times. It says this about Stephen in verse 15 of chapter 6 of Acts. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why was Stephen's face like the face of an angel? Two reasons. For one, is what is in always comes out. So because Stephen was full of the spirit of the living God, that has no choice but to shine on his face because of what's inside of him. The other reason why his face was shining, because he sat in front of King Jesus. And when we sit in front of Jesus, we reflect the king, y'all. And so the reason that Stephen was shining wasn't because Stephen was special. It wasn't because he had a unique set of gifts and talents. It was because what was within him and who was before him. And listen, church, the same spirit's within us and the same king is before us. And so we have been called to shine even in the midst of suffering. Because as contenders, we see suffering differently than the world may see it. We understand that suffering is not punishment. Hear me. God is not punishing you. Hear me. We do reap what we sow. Don't get it twisted. We do. We reap what we sow, but God is not punishing you. We understand that this world is broken and that sin is still impacting us in very negative ways, but we recognize that God is not punishing us through our suffering. And here's a truth that we don't like. Sometimes God's will for us is to suffer. Why would that be God's will? Because God's going to leverage that for a greater impact. And so maybe the only way that impact will happen is through the way the people of God walk through suffering. And I want you to think about Stephen's greatest impact was in his death because watching there, affirming what was happening was a guy named Saul who went on to have an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and got knocked on his back. And Jesus said, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus leveraged this murderer for the glory of his kingdom. But Stephen's death planted a seed in the the heart of Saul that continued to grow and then went throughout all of the Holy Land telling people about Jesus because of what Saul was able to witness. And even though Saul, he went after this moment and continued to persecute, I am sure that as God was working on him and calling him that he went, oh, I remember that dude that in the midst of being stoned to death, he fixed his eyes on Jesus and he changed a lot because I saw him shine through the suffering. How we handle suffering reveals who has a handle on us. 
Say that again. How we handle suffering reveals who has a handle on us. The sermons that we preach through suffering are the loudest sermons that we could ever preach. Because people look and go, man, even in the midst of what you're going through, you are still fixing your eyes on Jesus and you are still walking. 1 Peter 2, halfway through verse 20 says this. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Hear me. As we follow Jesus, there are times where it's going to lead us through suffering. But know that you have a good father and a good king who is going to leverage that for his good. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says this. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. See, contenders see suffering, and we know that it is not the end of the game. There is more to come. So when we see the church get persecuted and scattered, we go, oh, no, what is going on? How could God allow that to happen? Well, the reason God allowed that to happen was so that this gospel could continue to spread. And then we look at Stephen and go, oh, how could God allow him to lose his life? But do we not see that through Stephen's life being surrendered, it impacted a guy named Saul who took the gospel and marched around the known world at the time? God is working it out for good. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The story does not end with your suffering. The story does not end with your pain. The struggle does not end with the hurt. There is more to come. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Think about this for a second, because some of us are going through some hard times. But think about this. The eternal glory far outweighs all the pain that you are going through now. That is hope. We know that it does not end here. So I was listening to a sermon a while ago, and the pastor was talking about how olive oil was produced back in the day. And this is a bottle of olive oil. Some of y'all were looking at that bottle wondering what that was. Like, what you got, pastor? It's olive oil, everybody. And so it's interesting how olive oil is produced, and I think... It applies as we look at the life of Stephen and as maybe we reflect on our own lives. Traditional olive oil processing begins with crushing the olives into a paste. The purpose of the crushing is to facilitate the release of the oil from the vacuoles. Large granite stones were traditionally used to crush olives. In the early days, donkeys were used to pull the stone wheel around. The next step in the process involves malaxing the paste. 
which means mixing the paste. The paste is mixed for 20 to 45 minutes to allow small oil droplets to combine into bigger ones. This process ensures the olives are well ground and allows the fruit enzymes to produce desirable aromas and flavors. See, I was talking about how olive oil is produced, but really it applies to what Stephen's life produced. See, not only do olives get crushed by stones in order to produce an oil that is useful, but we see the life of Stephen. His life was crushed through stones in order to produce something that couldn't be produced in any other way. And one of my favorite parts about what happens as the olives are being crushed is the fruit enzymes to produce desirable aromas and flavors. As Stephen's life was crushed, a desirable aroma of the kingdom of God was let free and people were engaged and that aroma called people in to Jesus. So hear me. For you in the midst of what it feels like to be crushed. And you're going, God, why is this crushing happening? God, do you not see me? God, do you not hear my cry? Do you not hear my cries in the midnight hour? God, what is going on? God, why am I having to endure this crushing? Hear me. It will produce an aroma that smells of the kingdom of God that will draw others into relationship with Jesus. God does not waste the hurt. God is not going to waste the pain. He's going to leverage it for good. And he's going to give off a beautiful aroma that speaks of his goodness. And we see that in the life of Stephen. I want you to bow your heads for me. Jesus, for those in the midst of the crushing, for those who are looking for answers and the answers have not yet come, those who have prayed for the suffering to be released and to go, but yet that prayer has not been answered as of yet. Lord, in a way that only you can, will you remind us that you're going to leverage the crushing to produce something useful and something that gives off your aroma. And by doing so, you are going to work it out for the good of those who have been called according to your purposes. And may we remember that what we will see in glory will outweigh the struggle and the crushing here on earth. Jesus, what I love about you in the story of Stephen, Stephen played a role, but you are the hero of this story and you are the hero of our story. Jesus, I love that even through the crushing, Stephen was better able to paint a picture of you because you were willing to suffer to the point of death on our behalf. So maybe for us, some of us in this room today, it is time for us to recognize the gift that you gave us through sacrificing your life on the cross and say yes to you.
Maybe for others of us today, we need to step into a servant opportunity, leveraging our skills or our passion or just filling a spot in your name. And Lord, maybe today is the day where you have given us a proper perspective on our suffering so that we can continue to walk and be encouraged as we go. So Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation.